0: Lord, we uh, just come to you recognizing that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. You, in fact, tell the the Jews in Deuteronomy that you allowed them partially to hunger and to call upon you to teach them that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth. And so even though I'm sure many of us have had breakfast or coffee, until we have your word, we have not what we need. And so we ask that your spirit would just teach us and feed us this morning as we look at your word together and um, and Lord that we would grow by it. Um, we have many needs. We have sins. We have hardness of heart. <clears throat> it doesn't take but a day for us to grow more hard. Um, we have an attacking enemy, but we thank you that we have your word most sure and we have your Holy Spirit has shine sh- uh, shown in our hearts and um, and so we thank you for just the opportunity to be here this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're asking the question, where do false teachers come from? Brian says they're moms. It's a very good answer. Steve? Actually, it's not. It's from the father of Satan. Okay. There you go. It's from the father Satan. That would be the other answer. Uh, what we're going to find as we look at the anatomy of a church, uh, the particularly the church of Ephesus, we're going to see that false teachers largely come from within the church. Um, They come from within. There are those that come from without. Um, But part of what we're going to do here as we look at the third missionary journey is we're going to look at the anatomy of a church. But before we do, so let's go ahead and do a little bit of review. One of the verses that we're putting before, our attention, perhaps from memory, if you haven't memorized it thus far, is 1 Corinthians one eighteen. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. So it's not surprising that when we go out and we share the gospel, many people think it's foolishness. I thought it was foolishness. But then when the Spirit shone His light into my heart, suddenly it was the power of God to me. And uh, so it made a big difference in my life. So let's just do a little bit of review. Um, We're talking about the third missionary journey. Last week, Dan did a great job talking about the second missionary journey. Uh, The first missionary journey, which we did a couple weeks ago, this kind of shows you, if you guys remember, uh, Paul taking off and sailing to Paphros and makes his way up to Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Remember, he gets beaten. He's left for dead. But then he goes right back in to preach the gospel and then reports back to Antioch. Last week, Dan taking us through the second missionary journey, which was a lot uh, longer. It was about three thousand miles, twice as long, about four, uh, about three years, and um, spent a lot of time in Corinth, as you guys remember. Um, and so that's uh, the map that Dan showed last week. I've got a short video that I think is going to play right here, and uh, that I found that I thought was kind of a cool. Little summary. Can I click that now or let's give it a shot? See how it works. Maybe I'll stand over here. Okay, wait for it, it's not done yet. It's got to show the, something else at the end. All right. I thought that was kind of cool. That kind of helped me get an idea of uh, Dan's lesson from last week. Three thousand miles, so you're talking about basically from here to um, New York, right? New York City, in about a three-year period, walking and taking boats, and um, and then, as Dan talked about last week, meets up with Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, Coleman, or Winnebago. I think it. I think the archaeology says it was Coleman slash Winnebago. Is what we've discovered in more recent archaeology. Right? Nobody gets it. Who was here last week? Okay. So he was Dan was talking about their what was their last name? They're tent makers. So probably their last name is Coleman. And they traveled, to Winnebago's the tents are are for traveling purposes, so they have some place to sleep. So uh so yeah, so amazing amazing stuff when you think about what happens on this this one journey and just how the lord is leading and guiding so a couple the the items that uh dan emphasized last week was just the grace of the lord versus the law of the lord um so you have the jerusalem council right and it was determined that yes we are saved by grace we don't have to keep jewish laws nevertheless timothy this Jew slash Gentile is circumcised for the sake of the gospel, not in order to be justified. Right. As Dan talked about, but in order, there would be no cause for offense. That's quite a minor surgery in order to um, not cause offense for the gospel. Um, Paul clearly viewed evangelistic ministry as a team sport. So he's got all kinds of guys on his team as they're moving around and so we want to keep that in mind that it's something that we're doing together Um, people have different roles uh, but we all have a part to play and um and then his gospel message was that there were supernatural events that took place to fulfill specific prophecies before eyewitnesses and these events mean that there is a savior who will provide forgiveness of sins uh for those who believe and so he's off continually proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then the Lord is just doing amazing things to get this gospel out as the, as the church is being kickstarted, as we've talked about in the past here, early in the church, we have a lot of uh, volcanic eruptions and even smaller eruptions that are taking place to really kickstart the foundation of the church. And then for most of church history, it's been this steady lava flow that's just unstoppable as the kingdom spreads. Um, so that's kind of the the review as we move into the third uh, journey, Paul's journey, part three. This is kind of where uh, we're going to follow Paul as he retraces a lot of his steps. And this particular journey is uh, he's going to travel approximately 2,700 miles between AD 54 and 58. This is going to be his longest journey, about four years. And he's going to spend three of those years in Ephesus. And so we're going to focus almost exclusively on his ministry in Ephesus. And, And so let's open up to Acts 19. Acts 18 and 19. I'm going to actually start us in 18 where um, we see Paul's first contact in the material that Dan covered last week. So Acts 18 verse 18 and following, um, we see that Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centuria Um, He had taken a vow. This could have been a Nazarite vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. So he leaves Aquila Priscilla in Ephesus. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer uh, for a longer time with them, he did not consent because he wanted to, to get to Jerusalem. And so at the end of verse 21, he sailed from Ephesus. So this is the kickstart of this ministry is Paul briefly ministers in Ephesus, but leaves behind uh, the Coleman slash Winnebago's, right? Aquila, Priscilla, this super couple that in all likelihood got run out of Rome uh, when the Roman emperor, what was his name? When he ex extricated all the Jews. Do you remember, Dan, what that guy? Claudius. Yeah, Claudius. So Claudius basically kicks all the Jews out. Aquila and Priscilla are probably part of that. Come down to Corinth. uh, Eventually end up in Ephesus as part of Paul's team. And then there's kind of like this sideline note that's made at the end of of chapter 18, where we find out about Apollos. So remember, Apollos is preaching. He's very mighty in the scriptures, has a lot of passion. uh, But all he really knows about this point is the baptism of John. So Aquila and Priscilla very wisely um, take him aside, and it says they uh, they began they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Um, so this is interesting that this this couple takes along a, a, a Apollos off to the side and they minister as a couple to help him get updated in his theology. This is kind of an odd time period in in the in redemption because you've got people that are at various stages of their understanding of the Old and New Testament, right? It's almost like you guys remember reading about some of those Japanese soldiers that were still up in the hills years after World War II had ended. They would be up in these caves not knowing that the war had ended. In fact, there's the final soldier didn't come out until the 70s. Uh, there were people that had sent messages up to him telling him, hey, the war's over. But he was still picking off Filipinos with his rifle and they had to fly in his commanding officer, the one that sent him to the Philippines. They had to go get him from a grocery store, fly him in and go up into the hills and say, you are dismissed. And finally, when his commanding officer dismissed him, he comes out of the hills and he still had all kinds of ammunition. He was stocked with food. He was ready to keep fighting just you know it was this blast of the past um and so as the apostles are moving around um, the area they're finding people who had been contacted and received the message of john the baptist but didn't have the full story yet and so they need to be updated and so in all likelihood um so you've got these people that are that are hearing Apollos preach. And Apollos is, is giving him the baptism of John. Aquila, Priscilla take him aside. They teach him more accurately. Praise the Lord. Apollos has humility. Even though he's a great orator, he receives the ministry of this couple, this man and this woman. And, and then verse 27, and when he desired to cross to Chaos, so and now he's going to head back towards Corinth, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So this is evidence of early letters of commendation. People, when they traveled around from church to church, you would normally have a letter, which this indicates early forms of membership. By the way, um, that you couldn't just drop in on a church unannounced without some sort of letter of commendation. Um, <clears throat> and so, so they give they send him with letter a letter exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace and he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So this is a very interesting model. In fact, this is the, our theme verse for the team that we're sending to the Philippines this year. Steve is on that team and Rosemary and perhaps one more. Our theme passages, this Apollos passage is that we're going to help these Filipino pastors who are bold, who speak with a lot of confidence. They have a lot of knowledge and they, they know things that we couldn't possibly know about the culture and the various villages, but we want to come alongside and try to assist them in their ministry. They already have the knowledge and the boldness. We just want to come alongside to help them. For And really, we are come alongside to help our missionaries that are already there helping them and just look at the, the, the impact that Apollos has as he, as he travels over to Corinth. So with that little abbreviation or that parentheses, um, we now come to chapter 19, where Paul goes into his own updating ministry. He finds some other believers who are still kind of in the hill, so to speak. They don't realize everything that's happened yet. So let's pick it up at verse one. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. The idea of upper regions is he was kind of up there in the Galatian area, Galatia and Phrygia. And he came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard as whether there is a Holy spirit. So they don't even know that Pentecost has happened yet. Um, And verse 3, he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying uh, to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So this was the first Anabaptists, so to speak, right? These guys were re-baptized. They're baptized under John, but now they've heard the full story of Jesus Christ dying on the cross, sending the Holy Spirit. They get baptized verse six. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And the men were about 12 in all. So what we have here is Paul updates 12 disciples in Ephesus. And the pattern that you see many times in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit is given to various Gentile groups with the laying on of hands of apostles to make it very clear that God is extending the body of Christ, extending the gospel to not just Jews, but also Gentiles. So here is a Jewish apostle, Paul, laying hands on Gentiles, imparting to them the Holy Spirit. And then they get the evidence of the Holy Spirit by the speaking of foreign languages miraculously spoken without study. That's what tongues are foreign languages that would have been understood by other people and they're prophesying. So they are uttering forth divine revelation. Thus says the Lord kind of speech um, right there after they receive the Holy Spirit. And we're only talking about 12 people at this point, And they're called disciples. Notice we're going to see Later in the chapter, this term disciple pop up a few different times that will in all likelihood call us back to these 12. So then starting in verse eight, we now have Paul begins to speak boldly in the synagogue for three months. So how many disciples are there at this point, at least underneath Paul's ministry? Twelve. Okay, we do know that Apollos had an impact. Aquila and Priscilla had some impact. But now, right now, at least as far as Paul's ministry goes, there are 12. So then verse eight, and he went into the synagogue. This was his custom and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning things of the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God here in the book of Acts being the sphere of profession of faith would be the idea. So he's speaking of. Really pretty much what he had been updating the 12 with Jesus Christ came, died, was raised from the dead. He sent the Holy Spirit. There's now salvation by grace alone. He's bringing Gentiles into the body of Christ. It is not by law, so on and so forth. Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved You and your household kind of stuff. So so that's going on for three months. Um, But then starting in verse nine. Paul and the 12 withdraw from this day uh, to a daily reasoning in the school of Tyrannus for two years. So let's see that in starting at verse nine, but when some were hardened passive voice, that's interesting and did not believed, but spoke evil of the way. So the way is one of the, uh, the terms that's being used to speak of Christianity before the multitude He departed from them and withdrew the disciples. That would probably be the 12 reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So he takes the 12. He starts he kind of he starts lecturing on a daily basis in this school called Tyrannus Uh, Literally, the idea is our tyrant. This could be kind of a uh, kind of a a jab. This would have been a school that was used in the morning and maybe in the evenings. And then Paul is probably leasing it or got to know somebody who loaned it to him during the afternoon hours when it was really hot and students don't want to be at school. So probably from around 11 to 4 p.m., 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., Paul is teaching daily. At this place called our tyrant. Perhaps a pseudonym given to the teacher. By the students themselves. They would call their teacher. Our tyrant. And um, and so every day. He's he's there. He's lecturing. And people are showing up to hear him. For two years. So So many people are coming. That it could be said that all Asia. Heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the idea here would be basically people from every stretch of this providence of Asia, Ephesus being the capital of Asia. When we when we talk about Asia, we're not talking about, obviously, you know, Korea and Japan and China. This is a province in the Roman Empire, right? You know, in Galatia, this is, we're talking about Turkey. It's basically where we find it today. And so for two years, he's, he's just lecturing. People are showing up. And um, so there's just a lot of influence, So Paul is basically using Ephesus in the school of Tyrannus as his headquarters to preach the gospel. And what an awesome opportunity that he just kind of shows up every day and that people are showing up to hear him preach. What a great opportunity um, to have people come and just and just hear the gospel being preached every single day. So starting at verse 11, we now move into um, just this concept in the chapter that God begins to work unusual miracles by Paul. Um, However, the seven sons of Shiva aren't so lucky. So he's preaching. But as we've noted in the development of this early time of, of the of the church and the history of redemption, God is causing volcanic eruptions to happen. There's these crazy, unusual miracles that are occurring that cause the church to propel. There's this punctuation in the growth of the church. So let's read verses 11 to 17. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. What does unusual mean? Not normal. So, Luke is wanting you to know this did not happen every day. And to the people that are reading this, they would read these things and say, that's unusual, right? It's not like the Christians reading the book of Acts would be like, oh, yeah, we see this all the time. No, this is unusual. Verse 12, so that even a handkerchief or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So somehow, we don't know exactly how this worked, but either Paul would maybe just wipe his brow with a handkerchief. Somebody would grab it, take it to their sick loved ones. They would get healed. Demon possession is just rampant in Asia. It's, uh, it's all over the place. We don't. It's hard for us to understand this in our day, Because the devil has been so pushed back because of the gospel, we don't see this rampant demon possession like they saw it. Um, I'll show a couple pictures later, but uh, just last week, my wife and I were celebrating our 24th anniversary and we went to the Getty Villa. Has anybody ever been to the Getty Villa? Yeah, it's an amazing place. But they have all kinds of artifacts that are on display that date not only to the first century uh, time of the church, but all the way back to the Persian period as early as 600 BC. Some of these artifacts, we're looking at vessels that may have been around when Daniel was in Persia. Um, but we looked at this little amulet. This, there was this little golden amulet that would have been folded up and put into a kind of something you'd hang around your neck that was a mixture of an incantation to a Greek God mixed in with some scripture where this person was praying basically for their daughter who was demon possessed to be rid of the demon. And so, and they were just kind of basically crying out to whatever God would listen for the daughter to be rid of this demon possession. This kind of, these reports are just everywhere in secular literature. And, but when we look at the pages and acts, we see, Demon possession is everywhere. <clears throat> it is so common. Um, and and even today, when you go to different parts of the world that are less touched by the gospel, we have some missionaries that are in a certain country in Asia that I think you guys know about that um, one of the festivals, they went to this festival celebration. They brought their kids out there thinking, oh, this is just something that everybody celebrates in. And the whole carnival is basically they gather around a person. They all pray for the person to be demon possessed. He gets demon possessed and then he marches down the road like an animal while they're all crying out to the spirit of the demon possessed person. This is just normal. It's part of the celebration in this particular country. And so our our missionaries were there watching this when they once they realized what was going on, they're like, "Okay, children, let's go back to the house. Um, We just don't realize in our day and age because we've been so impacted by the gospel that demon possession was just normal. This was just part of life. And so here, Paul, unusual miracles where just a handkerchief from his body is being brought to someone else and demons are fleeing. That's the kind of stuff that God is doing. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So these would have been Jewish exorcists who received money. So you would have paid a Jewish exorcist money to try to get the demons out of your kid or whatever and they would receive the money, and then they would come in and try to perform various incantations and reading different things and spells and stuff. And, and so sometimes it would work, and sometimes it wouldn't. And so you just never knew. And, of course, the de- demons love messing with people, so it's not surprising that the demon would feign moving out of a person for a while just to kind of mess with people's heads and then come right back and all that kind of stuff. And so these guys think, oh, okay, here's another trick. Here's another spell that we can add to our magic book. And so they try to add Jesus Christ, who Paul preaches, to their one of their spells. Let's see how that works. Verse 14, also there were seven sons of she- Sceva, <clears throat> a Jewish chief priests, who did so. <clears throat> so they were in the, on the spell casting ministry as well. Verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know. But whom are you or who are you? Uh, Then the man in whom the evil spirit uh, was leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. When verse 17 says this, probably both ideas that people are getting healed by just handkerchiefs from Paul. And yet these same demons are running Jewish exorcists out of the house. And so people are seeing, wow, there is something to this gospel. This causes massive hemorrhaging in the, the devil's kingdom and hold in the Ephesian and area and in Asia. <clears throat> and, um, and so you can only imagine what's going on here. Um, By the way, those of you guys, several of you were here when you heard Kristen's testimony here at Cornerstone. And I was thinking of this passage when we were in the in the room back here in the conference room with with Kristen as she was so obviously demon possessed. But I was just waiting for I'm like I think all of us afterwards felt the same way. It's kind of like what kind of sin in my own life is going to be thrown on display during this time? Or is, are we going to be praying and using God's word? And suddenly is this demon going to look at me and say, I know Milton, I know Alvin, but who are you? And run me out of the room. Um, you just, these fears come upon you. I've never experienced anything like this, by the way. It's not that this happens every day. Um, But as we just... I'll tell you what didn't happen. We didn't put any handkerchiefs from Pastor Milton on her. Um, um, We just read the Bible and we prayed for about an hour. And then all of a sudden she cried out, Jesus, help me. And it was the end of the story. She fell out of her chair and she came to her right mind and she looked up at us and she was like, what are you doing here? Um, She had no idea what had transpired. And it was just... Out of, all of us just felt this overwhelming sense of praise of God. Jesus' name was magnified in our minds and in our hearts. Look at the power. When somebody just cries out to the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil has to run. When people ask me today, why do we not see the kind of demon possession uh, in our in our midst the way it seems like we see it in, in the New Testament? It's a very simple answer to that. And that is Jesus Christ is winning. The gospel has gone out and has so put the enemy on the run that you just don't see the type of demon possession that you saw back then. Um, And even the gospel itself has a salt effect. And there's this residual effect, even when our culture begins to reject a Christian worldview there's still an effect that it's had on the culture. And what, they, what some theologians would call us, there's a halo effect that continues to settle on a culture. Um, but the more and more we reject um, the Lord Jesus Christ, I think we're actually starting to see a rise in confusion and demonic activity in our culture because we're moving away from Christ. It's not surprising to me at all that we see young kids gender-confused, that we see people not knowing whether they're boys or girls that was going on. That was normal in the Greco Roman period. Um, I years ago um, I want to watch my time, but <clears throat> years ago we did a class called politics according to the Bible. And one of the lessons that we covered in there was on sexuality and homosexuality. And I went through a uh, Grudem's material But I also brought in a lot of my own study from both when I was in college and also in seminary. Because in both venues, I learned a lot about what Greco-Roman culture was like before the gospel came and what European culture was like before the gospel came. And I I was a young pastor at the time, but I I just tried to share some of the particulars of what Greco-Roman culture was really like. And I offended a few people who did, did not come back to my Sunday school class um, because of the nature of what I shared. And so I'm not going to share with you all the details. Um, I, I will share some details later, and I hope I don't offend you. But the type of culture before the gospel began to move through the Greco-Roman period, these weren't, this was not a Christian society. A lot of times we think that Americans here in the United States, we're all just good people. No, we aren't. The only reason we see the semblance of order and morality is because we are still feeling the effects of the first and second great awakening. That is still reverberating in our culture now. Um, You don't have to go very far to find rank immorality where the the gospel has not impacted. Read just the journals of Lewis and Clark when they were going across uh, Mer- the Americas and coming into contact with Native American tribes that were completely untouched by the gospel. Do a straight reading of those original sources that aren't kind of watered down for elementary school kids. And you'll see the paganism and the immorality that was in every Native American tribe as they moved across. I don't know if you guys, has anybody ever read the original journals of Lewis and Clark? Yeah, you can't read them in an elementary school because it's so sexual. Um, the the type of stuff that they were being accosted with on a regular basis is, is I mean, they don't go into X-rated details, but it's like R-rated stuff uh, because of everything that they're being impacted by by the Native American tribes. That doesn't get put into our history books. And unfortunately for better or for worse, when we're reading about Greco-Roman culture, it gets very watered down and we almost get this idea that the Greek and Roman gods were just a bunch of cartoon characters and these myths that nobody really believed in. No, these guys were as real as the spirits that everybody's afraid of up in the hills and mountains in Mexico. When you go to Mexico and you come into villages where there's um, Mexican Indians up there afraid of spirits in the forest and so they're cutting up chickens and all this kind of stuff to keep the spirits away. It's exactly what the great Greeks and Romans were doing to these various gods. And so these, this demon possession stuff, all of a sudden, when you see somebody come into town who does, it doesn't have to go to the local sorcerer to deal with demons that he's just talking about Jesus and the demons are running. That starts to make some headlines. And um, and so it's no wonder that people are coming to Paul and wanting to hear this gospel. So let's pick it up at verse 18, where many now confess and repent to the tune of 50,000 pieces of silver or 50,000 drachmas. So pick it up at verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds This is what happens with when real revival breaks out. People begin to confess and tell of their wickedness publicly. Also, many of those who had practiced magic or some translations say sorcery brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. This would have been probably Jew and Gentile books sorceries incantations to deal with the demons because this was big business there's so many people are are dealing with demons with demon possession that you have these sorcerers that are making some pretty good money to try to deal with it and they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver Um, one commentary I was reading says that's about 137 years of wages Think about that. 50,000 drachmas. I saw a drachma, a couple drachmas at the um, Getty Villa last week, dating to this period. Um, when people are willing to give up that kind of cash from their resources, you know something's happening. I remember when my brother in law became born again, Uncle John, um, he took like hundreds of dollars of CDs and just threw them away. All this like rap music that he used to listen to. This was like non-Christian rap. And then he started listening to Christian rap, which I highly recommend. If even if you don't like it, it's really good. Awesome stuff. If you want some recommendations, I can give it to you. Um, I I did the same thing. It, it, although I, I wasn't into the kind of, I got saved when I was younger. I threw away the beach boys, um, ACDC, my Sharona, Trying to think, a couple of those later on, I was kind of like, oh, I wish I had that back. Um, I'm half joking, but not really. Um, but yeah, I, I threw them in the trash, um, and, I, and I didn't want my my sisters asked me for them. They wanted my records, and I was like, No, I don't want the devil to get in you. And so that's 14. So I threw them in the trash, and then when my dad got home, he was really really mad that I threw away my my records and wouldn't give them to my sisters. Uh, but you know, whatever, you know with the sometimes we have passion, sometimes it maybe is a little overboard. But the point was is the Lord was doing a work in my heart as a 14-year-old. How many fourteen year olds do you know are like thrown away ACDC? You know, I don't I don't know many, I didn't know many fourteen year olds that were doing that. And and so that's what the the Lord begins to do is the spirit begins to work uh in the hearts of people, and they're willing to just give up. One of the pastors up north, uh, this pastor's up in northern California, and um, he started meeting with um, a guy that was saying that he was a cattle rancher. And so he asked him, like, you know, this guy was wearing, driving very expensive, like $100,000 trucks, boots that cost like $1,000, like really nice clothing, and so the pastor was like, yeah, what do you do for a living? Oh, he goes, I, I'm in cattle. Well, how many head of cattle do you have? He's like, oh, 50. Well, this pastor knows cattle. He goes, bro, you ain't a cattle rancher. You're not driving that truck wearing those boots with 50 head of cattle. What do you really do? He's like, well, I, I grow and sell marijuana. And um, so they started talking. This guy had made a profession of faith. And so the pastor said, you can't do that anymore started talking to him he pulled out two big old wads of cash 10,000 each. laid it on the pastor's table and said all right and the pastor's like i ain't taking that (laughs) and the wife was right there the wife scooped it up into her purse divorced him and she took off and to this day that guy is living in the church uh what do you call it uh what do you call a house that a pastor sometimes lives in parsonage so this ex drug dealer is living in the church parsonage to this day and he is happy as a clam. Uh the my pastor buddy says you won't find a happier man than this ex drug dealer that gave up his thousands and thousands of dollars to start following Jesus. He's poor but he's very very happy. And uh and so that's that's what you see happening here as the gospel is going out in the verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. But as often happens, um, paganism strikes back. So we're going to see the empire strikes back. Let's look at verse 23 and following. We're going to read through these verses pretty quickly um, and just comment as we go. So let's look at verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. So again, that's another kind of sounds like another name, just the name that's being used in the Ephesian area. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, uh, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So Demetrius, uh, he seems like perhaps he's the head of this a silver guild or shrine making guild. This would almost certainly be he's outfitting stuff for household shrines, probably. And I think I have this. Yeah. So this is a picture I took at Getty Villa. One picture of Diana or Artemis is the Greek name for her. She doesn't look too bad, right? It looks like it's a pretty good picture. I like those boots. Um, so she's she's the goddess of hunting. She's also the fertility goddess. Um, this is the rated G version of Artemis. The rated R version would have her with multiple b- born breasts. Um, she <clears throat> required all kinds of sexual orgies orgies for uh, as part of the worship of herself um, Greeks, Romans would send their pre-adolescent girls to her temple uh, because she required that of them. There was a, uh, an old myth that uh, an a pre-adolescent girl had had kind of done something, uh, had not properly honored Diana through this bear. And so now they were required to play the part of a bear to come back to her temple and so families would freely send their pre-adolescent girls <clears throat> to this temple. And she's a fertility God. And so one of the um, ways that you would worship this God is by participating in temple prostitution. So just put two and two together. Pre-adolescent girls, temple prostitution. Um, this is a coin that comes right from the, this type of. Uh, From Ephesus, you can see the epsilon and the phi on each side of the B. The B was a symbol that represented the priestesses of the Temple of Diana. They began to call them bees, probably just because there were so many of them and they were constantly moving around the temple. And so this was the largest center of worship and the worship of our Diana was the largest. More people worship Diana Artemis than any other goddess in the Greco-Roman period. It was huge for a lot of different reasons. One is, um, well, for the Ephesian, for Ephesus, it caused the, the temple of Ephesus to be the largest bank in the Greco-Roman era, in the Roman Empire. More money came in here than any other place, even Rome. And there were so, much, so many people that came to worship. And so it was big money. Um, secondly, Artemis, um, basically allowed for full on sexual exploitation and virtually just the sky's the limit, whatever you want to do from a sexual standpoint, you can do it, uh, for the sake of Diana and Artemis. So that caused her cult to be very, very attractive to a pagan environment. And, um, she also would quote unquote bless you in your pregnancy But you have to be careful because she could also curse you in your pregnancy. And so you would you would get statues like this from the silversmith as a votive offering. You would collect these things, bring them. You would worship them to try to make sure that your pregnancy would go to full term. If you made her angry, she may cause your pregnancy to not go to full term. And so, and then, one of the ways that you would try to make sure that you continue to be fertile is you would send your pre adolescent girls to the temple to serve uh Diana <clears throat> to continue to bless your future pregnancies. Can you see how evil the devil is this is just this is just evil, evil stuff um, that was normal to us this is this would seem we can't imagine this. Can you imagine? going to LA that we send all of our pre-adolescent daughters down to LA to be temple prostitutes to a God and that everybody's flocking there to worship that God. And we're not only okay with it, we're sending droves and droves of cash to make sure this happens so that we can all prosper and so on and so forth. This is just good for business. What is it that we hear today in California, United States, if something's good for business, like, Indian gaming, well, okay, we'll get some tax dollars out of it. Maybe the school will get some money. Or, you know, medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. Well, that's good for business. We'll get tax dollars out of it. What's the next thing that we're going to do that's good for business? Well, I'll tell you. In Europe, <clears throat> many parts of Europe, heroin uh, shooting up. You can go to basic, basic, you know, places to safely shoot up heroin. It's good for business. You can go to various places in Europe and have legal prostitution. It's good for business. Um, you, you don't even have to go to Europe. Go down to Tijuana. Legal prostitution. It's good for business. If it's good for business, then it's allowed. Well, Paul um, <clears throat> was not good for business. So, uh, so look at this, verse twenty-five. So Demetrius he called them together with the workers of similar occupation. So other. Shrine uh, silver workers, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. He ain't joking around. This is huge. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many, saying that they are not gods which are made by hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, But also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. When he says all Asia and the world worship, he's not joking around. Um, All of the Greco-Roman world traveled to Ephesus to offer their worship to Diana. It was a big deal. Verse 28. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana, Of the Ephesians, so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater, with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. This theater was huge. By um, some estimations, it seated twenty-five thousand people. Um, By the way, the temple of to Diana, we forgot to say this, was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, Um, an absolute. Just incredible from an artistic standpoint, um, modern artists talk about just the incredible nature of this temple, its pillars, its ionic look, um, just the huge mass, massiveness of it. Um, but make no mistake, when you go visit the Getty Villa, Villa or or one of these places and you're seeing these little idols to Diana, this is not artwork. Let me just can I go off on a little tangent here real quick? Is that okay? Can I do this little tangent? Okay, I'll do a little. This is my little um, ancient, my little ancient uh, Roman artwork uh, speech or sermon. When I took one of my first Bible classes down at LA Bible Training School with Dr. Curtis Mitchell, one of the things that he was talking about in one of our lessons as we were going through the New Testament is he talked about the art of the pagan Greeks and Romans. He's like when you guys walk into an art museum and you see a bunch of naked pictures and you think that's art, he goes you need to remember that's pornography. That is not art. <clears throat> when we when we look at it through these very kind of PG eyes and glasses, but you need to realize that when Paul and the apostles and these guys were just walking around their neighborhoods, they were accosted by nude images everywhere. And what's normally happened in the museums, especially in, in up until recently, is we see the tamest images, just like a naked statue of this person, a naked statue of that person. What you don't see is the Herms. I won't define that for you. Look it up. Um, what you won't see is the rank um, pornographic images that were on everything. Vessels, cups, Up everywhere. A Christian walking around Ephesus or Corinth was accosted with constant pornographic scenes, not just naked images, but acts with various stuff. I'm not even going to go into every different type of act that was on display everywhere you went. Imagine if you came over to my home and you walked into my house. And they didn't have photography and movies back then. They just put on display what was available. It was statues. It was cups. It was this. It was that. You walk into my home and I've got flat screen TVs all around my room with all kinds of naked pictures. I've got lamps that have naked people on them. I've got this and that. And you're walking over to my house trying to share the gospel with me. That is the average experience that a Christian would have at this time. Even just walking up to someone's home, they would have a pillar that would have pornographic stuff on the pillar before they came into the house. This is the rank paganism that was there and that they had to deal with. But what's universal is when the gospel began to move throughout uh Asia and then Europe and when it came uh, through throughout Europe. Here's what universally happened is people. Once they began to believe in Christ, they put away their naked idols. They started putting clothes on their body. They stopped their sexual immorality. They stopped cutting themselves and tattooing themselves and wringing themselves. And they began to worship Christ and their whole approach to their bodies changed. This didn't happen because they passed laws And all of a sudden, everything changed politically. It's just once people began to be filled with the spirit, now they viewed themselves as made in the image of God. It completely transformed the way they began to view art and the body and how they handle themselves. They began to, and this just happened naturally. Fast forward to 300 years. Who won in the first 300 years? Did the Greco-Romans win with all of their money and 50,000 drachmas? I mean, with everything that the biggest bank in in Europe or was it Christians going out and preaching the gospel? Who won? The church won by 300. You've now got Constantine, who is now proclaiming himself a Christian emperor by 397. Homosexuality is illegal. It is pronounced against the law in Rome. How does that happen? It happens as because the gospel transforms culture. It transformed culture. And so you as a Christian, you would have been just accosted by constant pornography. But a few centuries later, you couldn't find that stuff. This the, a kind of movement where they went around destroying these statues. If you talk to modern people, they talk about that as being such a travesty. That Christianity, that Christian emperors were going around destroying these idols. What they don't tell you is they're destroying pornographic stuff that was used for sex trafficking. That's what you don't hear. They just say, oh, it's so terrible that they destroyed all this wonderful art. This wasn't wonderful art, this was stuff that was put out there by demons in the name of demonic activity, sex trafficking, making money on pubescent girls. For the devil. And so it's no wonder the church went on this iconoclastic, you know, rampage, um, throughout the Roman empire. Once it became a Christian quote unquote Christian empire. All right. We're, p- we're pretty much out of time. So let me just kind of summarize what we're going to hit on the back end. And that is that when you have this final scene, <clears throat> you have all these people gathering this, in this, uh, theater. Paul wants to go in, but everybody keeps him out. They're like, Paul, if you go in there, you're a dead man. So they keep Paul out. Finally, the city clerk, what we'd probably think of as the mayor shows up. Most of the people that are in the theater, they don't even know why they're there. They just know there's a riot, just like riots today. Everybody shows up. They're all hollering. Great as Diana. If you start asking around, why are you here? They're like, I don't know. I just, everybody is all excited. And, but some people knew why they were there. And, and so, um, basically the mayor settles everybody down. If you look at verse 35, he says, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image, which fell down from Zeus. Some people think that there was actually a meteor that came down at some point and that meteor was transformed into the idol, uh, for, uh, Diana, Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet. Do nothing rashly, because we all know that Diana is the great goddess, right? Uh, verse 38. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in a lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question of today's uproar there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What's going on here? Pax Romana. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. One of the blessings for the sake of the gospel during this time period is when you did have a riot that would kind of rise up like this, is a representative of the Roman government could stand up and with a lot of authority, say, we better calm this down or soldiers are a coming and you know what they're going to do. And this was the strong arm of the law. This was Romans 13 stuff that the sword is not born in vain. And Rome had no qualms if there was going to be rioting and people out of control in sending in their soldiers in wreaking havoc on that part of that society. Coming in, taking no prisoners or actually taking prisoners, um, you know, taking the heads of the riot, making them a public example, crucifixion and whatnot, putting a lot of people in prison, sending all your your family off into slavery. The Ephesians would have known this. They heard what, what had just happened in Rome with Jews being kicked out. And so once this is is spoken, um, by the the mayor, the city clerk, um, everybody kind of gets their heads about them and says, "We don't want the Roman army coming in. Let's uh, let's disperse quickly." And so, this is actually one of the blessings for the sake of the gospel. That as much as Paul and and uh, and his associates, his team, were at times under threat, um, in God's providence. They are living at a time period with while there's rank immorality, there is surprisingly good order in the Roman Empire, and and they were able to provide a lot that actually propelled the gospel. So you guys remember last week on Dan's lesson when these guys when they were uh, arrested, and then the Philippian jail that Paul could actually appeal to his Roman citizenship. And the people who had bound him, they feared, right? And so there was a role that the sword that the government was playing at this time where people actually feared the government. This was a good thing. This was a good thing for society. It was a good thing for the gospel. While the the immorality there would have been quite a challenge for Christians, on the other hand, uh, Christians could appeal to the law and many times expect to hear to get at least a fair hearing. And we are as well should be thankful that we still live in a country where there is a respect for a law. I don't know if you guys have been very many places where there is no respect for a law. Um, I have um, even traveling down to Mexico in Mexico City. I remember being in a part of Mexico City that was the rich area. And I remember a... Uh, a police officer coming up in his little tiny Mexican police car, trying to pull over this um, rich, probably 20 year old and trying to get her to pull over. And she just laughed at him, kicked his car and just walked down the street. And, and this guy knew he just knew I can't touch that girl. She's got too much money. She probably had some rich, guy that could have his head and it was very clear that this policeman had no authority whatsoever in this rich part of uh, de fe uh, mexico city you do that here in the united states still in our in our culture somebody mistreats uh, somebody with that kind of authority and there is something to fear right and we should be very thankful that we still live Uh, largely in a culture that is still affected by the Great Awakening, the First and Second Great Awakening. There are still basic laws that people are following. This does not happen by nature. It happens when there is some kind of fear of God that is still in a society. And, And so we should be very thankful for that. So we're over time. Let me just encourage you guys to... With one with one point, and that is that the gospel is powerful. It is the power of God unto salvation. When we look at the transformation of the Roman Empire and then the way it moves into Europe. um, I'm sorry, I do have to read just this last quote from uh, Sinclair Ferguson. This will wrap things up for us a lot of us were at the Shepherds conference recently, and there was a Q and a with a number of people, Al Mohler and Mark Dever and John MacArthur. And, uh, but Sinclair Ferguson was on the platform as well. And he had this amazing thing to say when they were asking him, how, how are things going in Europe, your side of the pond with all the transgender confusion and all this kind of stuff. And here's what he had to say. Um, He says, there's an underlying thought in our culture in the United Kingdom. If we can get rid of the distinctives of the Christian faith, then we will get back to being the decent people, the free people we used to be. And most of our people do not know enough history to know that actually before the gospel came, we were pagans. We were running around with blue paint like Braveheart. And truth be told, they were running around naked, worshiping Thor, sexual immorality, cutting All the same kind of stuff you saw in Europe, in uh, Rome. Like Europe, when a nation has had the gospel and rejected it, it doesn't at first realize it. It continues to borrow from the gospel. And as it chips away at what it has borrowed from the gospel, it does end up in a kind of medieval nihilism. And that's where we're moving right now in our culture. Is as our culture is moving away from the gospel, all of a sudden now we're moving into this nihilism where... It's all about the self and it's all about your expression and some of the confusion that we see is not surprising. However, as we continue to go out and preach the gospel, it would not be surprising at all if there's a turn. That's what happened in the 1700s. If you you look at historically what was going on in the colonies in the early 1700s, there's a quote. I think it's from Jonathan Edwards. All the youth, all they do is they go around night walking and tavern going. What's night walking in tavern going? It's cruising and picking up girls. That's all they did. They drank, cruised, and picked up girls. But then the gospel came, and it was this huge transformation in the culture. We call that the great awakening. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this great awakening in Ephesus and just the movement of the gospel, kicking demons out to the curb, seeing uh Unusual signs through Paul, but particularly the power of the gospel being preached and lives being transformed. And that same gospel is here today. As we read your word, as we go out and just speak your word, um, that is what can change society and change hearts. Um, we pray, Father, for our country and our culture, Lord, that we would have our part to pray and to live holy lives. And to share the gospel, fully expecting that your gospel will, it will be a fragrance of death to some, but it's going to be a fragrance of life to others. And so we leave that in your hands and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.